It's me, Dan, from Harmontown. You can hear episodes of our show and 30 others before anyone else on TuneIn First Play. The TuneIn app is a free mobile audio app available across iOS, Android, and Windows. Podcast superfans get even more from their favorite shows. For four weeks, new episodes of Harmontown will be available a full 24 hours early, exclusively on TuneIn. Podcasts will release their new episodes early, including feral audio shows like Drinky Fun Time, Dome People Town, and Natural. Butte. Tune in is also full of content like live sports, news, music, and audiobooks. Get the next episode of Harmontown right now at the TuneIn app at tunein.com slash Harmontown. Hello, 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 and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Johnny Pemberton, and this is Twisting the Winds. What is it? It's a new podcast. It's a new audio explodable rocket I'm going to blast out into the spaces of your ears and, well, just see what happens. You know, it's about trying it on, just putting it out there, doing some communication making a phone call, long distance, near distance, just flapping the gums, you know, making some sounds, maybe even doing a weird voice sometimes, that could be it, it's just trying it on, putting your hands on the branch and twisting the wind, just twisting the old wind, that's it, that's that's pretty much it, you know, just going to be old style, new style, trying it out, see what happens talk to some people, maybe even a dog, maybe even some non-dogs, some more exotic animals, but just we're just going to do it here, okay? That's it. And there you, there you have it. That's the introduction to the very first podcast. I'm not going to belabor the point. I'm not going to take off my shirt and do 21 push-ups, because I already did that today, okay? I already did that. So what I'm going to do right now is just enter this podcast and welcome you, and thank you, and man, oh man, I'm happy for you. I'm happy for me, I'm happy for this whole thing, exploring these aural spaces, these A-U-R-A-L spaces, that's the spelling of that word, I just thought I would spell it out, you know, because most people, when you hear aural and oral, they sound almost identical, they're a little different, but that's what this podcast is all about, is that difference, that aural-oral combination just splattering out onto the ear faces of, of the world. I almost said universe, but then I said world. It doesn't matter. I hope it doesn't matter to you. I hope you feel good. You're rooted, you're grounded, but you're also reaching up into the universe through the bottomless lake of sound and out like a tree of sparks, okay? That's what I want from you and from me, to join you in the massive tree of sparks that uh, arches out throughout the universe. It's now time for our first guest. When I say our, I mean me. When I say first, oh, I mean first. I mean the real deal, number one of all time here on this show. That's a good one, too. It's a real, real good one. His name's Danny Holloway, also known as DJ Danny Holloway, because he's a DJ, an amazing DJ, the best DJ. 
a music producer, music writer, basically anything and everything you can do in and around the field of recorded music. He has been doing that for over 40 years, maybe longer. I don't really know. I don't want to get down to the numbers because it doesn't matter that much. But this guy is all up in all that stuff, and I have a huge amount of reverence for him. And plain and simple, fucking love him as a DJ, at the very least. The very, the very least, this man is the most amazing DJ I've ever seen in my life because, yeah, it's, you can't describe that kind of stuff. That's why they have, that's why the music exists, is because if I could describe it, then what would be the point? It's amazing. So you should try to see him live whenever possible and listen to all of his mixes. And now we're going to listen to him talking to me, and it's going to be great. So thank you. There's no reason to thank you. You didn't do anything, but yeah. Welcome to Twisting the Wind. I'm with Danny Holloway. Danny Holloway is a DJ, producer, music writer, everything, all things music. You've done it for how long now? Uh... All my life. All That's your all life. I've done. Right. Yeah. That's all I've done is music. So, yeah, I worked in record stores when I was a teenager. I did everything. I kind of just, I moseyed along trying to find uh, like a suitable uh, plateau to operate from, and I'm still searching for it. Nice. That's good. <laughs> as long as you're still searching. Yeah. So, where did you grow up then? Long Beach. Long Beach. Yeah. So, that, there's a lot of uh, musical uh, alumni from Long Beach, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Snoop Dogg, I know for one. Yeah, yeah. Snoop, Sublime are the, probably right. the two most famous artists from there. And then, in my era, you know, like, um, like I came up in bands in the 60s, and uh, not so many were really famous from Long Beach. There was a band called The Pyramids who had a big... The Pyramids? Yeah. Right. Don't, don't, they had like a reissue, right? A 45 or something? Yeah, they had a song called Penetration that yeah. was like in the top 10 in the country, I think, and it was a surf instrumental that came out late. Like, it, it sounds like 1961 or two or something like that, but it was actually like 64 or something like that, I think. Right. And so they were from Long Beach. They did a goofy thing that when the Beatles came out, the whole band shaved their heads and went bald. Sort of uh, like the monks, kind of. But yeah, they did in that. between the monks. Yeah, so they did that, and they were in a they were in one or two like of those beach movies and stuff, mm-hmm. like the Frankie Valley kind of thing. Yeah, the uh, no Frankie Avalon. Frankie the re- Avalon, really bad yeah. movies. <laughs> yeah. They were in one of those. And um, well, this is a band you played with? No, 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 no. That oh. was a band I saw. Okay. When I was growing up, let me see. Well, my first experience with music was like my parents were very young. I was the first born, so my mother was nineteen, my dad was twenty one, and then. And there were records around the house, 45s and a small record player. And they would leave the house sometimes and leave me behind. And the records kind of became my friends, you know. And I would just like, if I fell in love with one of them, if it just, usually things that had a lot of energy, I would just keep playing it over and over and over the same thing. And so that was when I was probably like five or six. Do you remember like any specific records from that era? Yeah, there was a record by Little Richard called She's Got It that was like that. It wasn't one of his big hits, but it just had like tons of energy, really rocking it super fast. And that's the stuff I liked when I was little. And then, um, and they had all, you know, they had good records for that time. It was Elvis Presley and Fats Domino Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, as things went along, like I think I learned how to play guitar when I was about eight or nine or something like that. But I, it was too much for me to concentrate on. So I came back to it at a later age and I, 
I became, you know, I started playing really when I was about 13. Okay. And I was that's also the Yeah, I was a singer in a band when I was 13 and then my voice changed and it got really bad. <laughs> so I had to be a I had to be a player as opposed to a singer. Right, selector. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And so what, at what point cuz I know you've done a lot of traveling. You travel you've lived in Jamaica, lived in London and Yeah. When did you leave Long Beach for the the longest and first time? Well, uh, I grew up in Long Beach and I played in bands uh, through all my teenage years. And then I became kind of frustrated because uh, it wasn't really going anywhere serious. And I just decided, well, you know, now's a good time to take a break. This is like 1969, 1970. Mm -hmm. And I took a break and I, I just decided, well, I, I you know, I've I admired a lot of the music coming from London at that time, so I went there and with the expectation. Like, what of, kind of stuff were you listening to from London at the time? Uh, just all the usual stuff, just everything, know? all the freak beat kind of stuff. Or? Yeah, it was really you know it was all the bands like the Who, the Kings, the Zombies. Them was my favorite band, them. and then you know all that stuff. Though I mean mm -hmm. now it's all well known, well documented, and it's and it's considered kind of you oh, know yeah. blase or whatever. But at the time, like a band like the Pretty Things at that time was very progressive if right. you knew about that here yeah it's yeah. very progressive you know and that's all the stuff i was going for and then when i ended up going there i thought okay yeah i'll stay for a little while i thought i was going to stay for maybe a few weeks or something like that but it turned into five years and every time i saw like the pretty things first <laughs> album there they didn't have a, an appreciation for it they were like selling it for like a dollar or right. something i just kept buying it and buying it and buying it you know every time i saw it i thought for a buck i'm not losing you know I, so i i but now probably, it's the opposite though isn't it now it's like everything in london's super expensive yeah. Yeah, yeah. You have to really know. Rate. You have to have a nose for where to get records these days. You know, you, it's not. You just can't walk into record stores in most places and find yeah. good records. You know. Yeah, you have to like know what you're looking for. Yeah, and it helps to know guys. You yeah. Know? Like if you know a guy and you can, even if you're traveling and you get to go to his house and hang out with him socially and then ask to see. You know, first you start off by asking records that he has for sale. Right. And then you ask if you can see his record collection and then. As you go through there, you go, Oh my god, I've been looking for this record my whole life, you know, and you try to work out a deal, you know. Right, right. And sometimes what happens is uh, people will have um, they'll have had ownership of the record for a long time, right? You know, so they if they've owned it. 20 or 30 years or something like that that's kind of like pride of ownership they've kind of gotten over the fact that they got it that they yeah. own it yeah the score even the it, score and, it's, and it may not be as big of a priority for them as it is for you right you know they're not quite as passionate about it and when all those factors you know come into play then you can find a way to weasel the record away from <laughs> to the guy weasel it, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah and um and some guys are just cool like you know i'm I'm fairly blasé, you know, about when I sell records sometimes, you know, and, and even if I can see the guy is really super keen, I'll sell it to him for at a mo uh, modest price, you know. Right. You do that thing where you, uh, there's a record store I went to in New Orleans that had a big sign that said, uh, all vinyl prices are subject to change, which to me means subject to what we interpret to how much money you have yeah, with the time of purchase. So. Yeah, that's kind of disgusting. <laughs> yeah. and then, in general, I would say most record dealers think like that. Right, yeah. And I, I'm a collector first, and I sell records on the side. So I kind of look at myself as a person, like a, a similar to a person that loves, uh, that that's uh, that loves pets. 
Okay. Right? So they want to see you go to a good home, you know. Right. And I'm in that same category. So I want to see your yeah, record go to the right guy who, you know, is either going to really super appreciate that record themselves or have an outlet to expose it to other people. Right. You know, for example, in town, I sold maybe a hundred of my super rare Jamaican 12 inches to Tom, who runs the dub club. Okay. And, you know, I love Tom as a guy. Also, he, he exposes the music, so it gets to be heard by people. So it's worth it. Yeah, it's yeah. really, then it becomes a real satisfactory transaction, right, right. you know. So go, go back to the timeline here. So you're, <laughs> you go, you're in London here for like five London. years. How, did, yeah. how were you living then? Well, when I first arrived, I arrived with just a modest amount of money. I don't know, maybe $300 or something like that. That's pretty good for 1969. Well, it? you know what I did was uh, uh, I really did give up the musician side of my life when I right. took that trip. I sold all of my equipment okay. and I got whatever money I could and just kind of threw it into this trip not knowing where it was going to take me. And when I arrived in London and I had been there a few days, it was summertime and it was just kind of magical. And I just go, (laughs) man, I want to spend as much time here as I can. So Mm -hmm. I looked for a job and and I just walked into a record store and and asked if they needed help. And it was a small uh, record chain. There was like six or seven of them. They were called Disky. And they said, well, the head office is at this location, go over there and see this guy, and then maybe you can get something. So I got, I got a job in this record store, and um, that lasted, you know, for a while. And then while I was doing that, I was kind of bored, like I... it. it, it, it that, you know, I wasn't that stimulated by it. The best part was, you know, the new music coming out and everything like that. But the way they did it then was they would give advanced copies of the albums and Mm -hmm. the music that was coming out to the record stores so that they could... Play uh, it in the store, right? No, 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 so that they could... um, They would give it to them like a few weeks in advance, maybe three or four weeks, uh, so that they can order it, right? Okay. They'd know they'd be able to order from doing that. And so what I figured out was if with these advanced copies of the records, I could be reviewing them uh-huh. and then running around and putting the re- reviews out there. So it synchronized with the release date. I would already have the, uh, the, the review done by the time. Right. So, so you beat everybody to the punch. Yeah. So I did that. I went around being like a freelance writer and started to get printed and everything like that. And then Is this with enemy. No, it was, before, it, it was before that. It was okay. like, so I went through a period where I was writing for, I mean, the articles were appearing in things like Time Out, uh, International Times, a uh, bunch of different little indie kind of things. And then um, one newspaper started to print a lot of my stuff. There, mm-hmm. The big thing at that time in England was the music weeklies. Okay. So there are newspapers that came out every week. And the two biggest ones at the time were Melody Maker and the New Musical Express, the NME. And then there was a third one called Sounds, which was started by ex-Melody Maker staffers. And that was also a very solid paper. And there was Disc and Record Mirror. There's probably like five altogether. And they all sold well, you know, right. like over 100,000 each a week. Wow. You know, I can't imagine any piece of paper now ever getting read that much. Well, this is this is the main reason why the papers were so popular is because they only had one radio station. Right? Okay, that was that Radio One or yeah. something. Yeah, they had Radio One at the time, and then they had uh, Luxembourg was a weird kind of quasi uh, pirate station or the whatever. The country, that was. Lu- no, yeah, it was no. a radio station called uh, Radio Luxembourg. Okay, but I'm not sure whether it was 
a legit station. It might have been a legit signal that came from Luxembourg all the way across to England. It might have been far, there. yeah. But um, so that was the only other thing that they could listen to on the radio. And if you had a, a a specialist kind of radio, like a ham, not a ham, but if you had a a, a, a different type of radio, you could get the all American American for, uh, forces radio. Okay, so you could hear the American. See, the uh, uh, you couldn't hear American soul at the time. Um, oh, really? Not at all in England. No, like uh, a Marvin Gaye album would come out and not get played. You know, like let uh, they wouldn't play it. Why wouldn't they play it? It's just not what they were playing. I mean, they, they, were, they were played like maybe one song, maybe one song. Curtis Mayfield, maybe one song, right. maybe, you know, but great albums were coming out. Classic albums that were like huge, you know, and and not getting played. Really? Yeah. So uh, but the music press covered everything. It covered mm -hmm. jazz. It covered reggae. It covered everything. And we kind of exposed what we considered to be the great music. And that's why people bought the papers, really, I think, more than anything. And. And then, you know, also the exclusive articles with the with the musicians and stuff like mm -hmm. that and everything. But uh, anyway, so that's that's how that went. I went from doing completely freelance, going around to different people to being used a lot by sounds over the course of a year. And then uh, I saw a job, uh, an ad for a position at the NME and I ended up getting a job. And so I was there only a year and a half. Mm -hmm. But. There's probably in the books that are being written now, you know, a friend of mine, he buys, he buys all those books that are coming right. out and he's, there's probably like 25 or 30 books that all have quotes from me. Oh, really? The articles that I wrote in that period. So it, it was just, you know, kind of a zeitgeist period. Mm -hmm. They call it now in terms of the enemy, it's kind of a, a famous thing in England. They call it the class of seven seventy two. So I came in in 72. I wasn't one of the famous guys. It was Charles Char Murray and Nick Kent were the two guys that were really... Is that Kent? Does that have anything to do with Kent Records at all? Or is no. That coincidence? No. Okay. Kent, Kent Records was uh, an offshoot of Modern Records, okay. which was here in Los Angeles. Okay. But Nick Kent was a guy who... I guess in England, he became one of the guys that was uh, kind of like a rock star journalist. Like he was kind of a star right. as well as being a journalist. And so, yeah, it, it, he became really popular. And then the other guy, Charles Char Murray, was just um, real. Uh, um, it was just his his thing was to be real. Um, controversial in a way you know so just to, to like a, one, one time one time he was going out to a show and he told me what the caption was going to be of the review he was going to write before he even saw the show <laughs> like he was just bombastic is the best word i can think so he of. would he just, was, just make up his mind before he even listened to something yeah he just he liked posturing and he had a pretty significant ego and he would just lay into things like really go to town and he was talented with words so he, he would just crunch it whatever right. it was you would just crunch it you know? so you you do any djing at all this time no Not i didn't I mean, i'm trying to think when i started you know i started i was working for island records in los angeles this is way later in the 80s right. and and a, a guy knew that i had a um about my record collection so i we used to fill in at the um club lingerie it was a club on uh sunset up near where Amoeba is now. So this is fast forward like 1980. Yeah, that's in the, in the mid-80s. And, the, and that's when uh, they would have all kinds of different acts playing there. They'd have uh, 
black flag, you know, and oh, then they'd shit. have a, a rap thing. And, you know, they had all the kinds of different stuff there at that time. And so on certain nights when the usual DJ couldn't make it, I would fill in. So that was the start of me ever DJing was way back then. But I never thought about it doing it at all mm-hmm. later on so you were just collecting all that time and writing just collecting. And listening. that's all it was yeah. collecting listening and then occasionally writing about it and then uh well as far as d as far as djing djing as we know it wasn't really around then except for the radio is that right I just, yeah I said, uh, well uh, maybe sometimes you know there were club djs in the 70s and stuff like that but um it didn't work were, the same way though. yeah work how did it work exactly like how do, how would that like technically, how does that work? Because everyone knows now you have the two turntables. Yeah, I wasn't in. I wasn't in the booth then, so I don't know. Like I, I remember going to Jamaica and seeing just one turntable. Right, oh, that's what I was going to ask you about. Because yeah. I remember uh, reading about how back in the day, like in the fifties, when they have these sound systems before they even were playing Jamaican music, they were playing all these American R and B songs. How these guys they would uh, change the record using one. They have like, so they did some trick where they'd pick up the record with their pinky and thumb. And then they'd throw on the other record with this other part of their same hand as they picked up the needle with their left hand. I remember practicing that for hours trying. How do they do this? I know this is like some Jamaican DJs can do this, but I could never figure it out. I could always drop my records and stuff. Well, yeah, you probably yeah. have to be part magician. Yeah, to I think so. But um, I, when I saw them, they, I think they used a lot of um, reverb and decay so, okay. that, so that as they picked up the needle, you could still hear the record kind of right. going on a little bit. That's so crazy. I never and, knew that. And then the guy would talk on the microphone. So he, mm-hmm. so as he's changing the record. I'm talking about Jamaica know, here. Right? Yeah. So okay. it'd be going, a little big record on the banana. They seem to drop the needle from about five inches above the record and just let it bounce. You know? Right. Uh, which I really like a lot. I really like the the kind of rough and rugged style that I was exposed to in Jamaica. And when I do that here, people have no appreciation for it at all. Well, <laughs> okay, we're taking a music break here. What's this first record you just threw on? You know, I just recently got this. It's called Sibonet, mm-hmm. and it's by a group from Panama, Panama. called Eugene. Well, the, the group is called The Beachers. And um, I don't know exactly when it was released, but Sibonet is a song that was written like uh, about 1910 in that area by a Cuban guy who also wrote the flamenco classic Malagueña okay. and other don't things really know, like that. Like there's, he wrote two or three, maybe four really famous songs. This song was written about his homeland, Cuba, and, and so Sibonet is a synonymous word for Cuba. Okay. And um, so it's it, it has this real feeling of longing, you know? Right. Which they call in Brazilian music, saudade, I think they pronounce Sadaugi. it. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, let's play it. Are you guys switched over to the 45 thing? 45. That little... Boom, boom, boom. Here we go.
nice. Sibonet. That's what I sound. That's what I think I sound like when I do my falsetto. But I don't think I probably sound like that. So that's the. What's it called? The Beechers. Yeah, that's the name of the group. The Beechers. And the vocalist was a cat called Eugene. He, that, that was a guy. Yeah. Very. You know. Very. Yeah. I don't know whether that's falsetto or contralto or something. But what's contralto? Above a falsetto, I think. Really? Yeah. I never heard that before ever. Yeah, falsetto would be normally an octave above your okay. singing range. Right. And I think contralto is if you re- remove your nuts. Oh, isn't that, that's castrato, right? Uh, yeah, that? it might be. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. all I know is, you know, the the monks and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> once they remove their nuts, they sometimes sing yeah. really high. <laughs> yeah. I remember the first time I saw you DJ is I was blown away because it was at the barcade. It was probably like about five years ago. And I walked in, you're DJing 45s, you're all playing, playing only reggae and rock steady and stuff. And you were just quick mixing this stuff, like so fast. You just play like the hook and part of the verse, and then you just slam it over to something else. It was so aggressive, and I'd never seen anyone like that with like with such balls, just, just playing. And it, to me, right away, I was like, this is so cool. I've never seen someone DJ like this because... I grew up on all these DJs who were so safe and so like, yeah, you, know, you got to match the beats and you got to. Yeah, that's what stuff. that's it's, that's what it sounds like to me when I yeah. listen. I mean, I get uh, a lot of um, you know like negative feedback from guys who consider themselves professional DJs. That's kind of that's awesome though. I mean, fuck and 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 you know, like digweed. Uh, yeah, I mean, really, my. Uh, my 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 feeling or whatever it is when I'm spinning records, it is aggressive. I mean, I, I you usually it, I do it best if I've had uh, you know a, a couple of shots before I go up there, yeah. and then I I think uh, what I've figured out is that sugar is a big part of it. Like, sugar, like yeah, it's 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 uh, I you know I ramp up the records. Yeah, I, I ramp up the records like I speed them up, right, and stuff like that, and. Uh, uh, and it, so it sounds like it's actually like some sort of amphetamine thing or something yeah, like yeah. that. Like it's really, really, but there's so much energy coming off of it. But really, uh, <laughs> about six months ago, I decided that sugar was, I was probably heading towards being diabetic, you know? Okay. So, That's not good. I, my, yeah, parts of my limbs and stuff started to feel numb. So I, uh, I stopped doing sugar about six months ago you said do sugar like it's something like you shoot in your veins or well, something. well it, it it felt like it honestly well, well, how, then, do you, how do you like do so like, now my 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 style changed like suddenly right. i the tempos are coming down really? yeah. wow. and it's really so it's a whole other thing and 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 now i realize that at certain times when it kind of requires me to be more aggressive mm-hmm. i'll you gotta do some sugar i have to do some sugar i have to have a couple of shots i have to include some coke in there Cocaine. Uh, Coca-Cola. Okay. No, no, I, I, I never, I, I never, well, if I was, you, if I had done cocaine, I wouldn't be alive now. You wouldn't be doing, yeah, the kind of thing you're doing. I wouldn't right be now. alive because it's very destructive over a long period. Yeah, it's, it's a bad, it's. I it's did not, it one time and it was an accident when I did it. I've only done it a couple times and the one, there's only one time I ever did it where it really hit me and I was like, oh no, I get, I, I simultaneously thought how great it was and also how awful it was because I'm like, this is. It's too good to be sustainable over any period over than over longer than an hour. Yeah, yeah. After that, it's yeah. This is too good. Plus, it's, it's like visiting the moon or something. Well, that's your initial reaction, yeah. and then after that, you're always chasing that exactly, feeling, yeah. and and, it, and and you don't ever get there. So never get it again. Yeah. I still want to hear more about when you say you do sugar. You mean uh, like you, how does how does it work? Well, 
Like eat a bunch it, it, of candy bars? Yeah, or it just, just comes from what everybody else does. Eating, you know, candy bars, cakes, pies, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, that's what I, I used to do on a daily basis. Okay. I would eat a lot of food like that, like I was a teenager or something. Wow. And I did it pretty much my whole life, but I just can't eat like that anymore. I, it, it, it's so I have to, uh, I'm changing my diet right, right now. And the music is sounding different. And, you know, it, like I said, at certain times when I need to be more aggressive than... I'll, I'll drink a little alcohol and include some Coca-Cola and, and, and lean into it, you know? Um, so were you ever into a, the drug scene back in the day, like in the sixties and seventies? Oh, in the sixties I did everything. Right. And then, so everything back then means dropping acid. Yeah. Psilocybin. Yeah. So, you know, all the, everything that came around at that time. Right. So it was uppers, downers, you know, yellow jackets, the, black beauties, yeah. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin's hot tubs. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I, did, I, flowers. I, I experimented in my teens. That, so, okay. that, that, uh, and then when I turned twenty, that was nineteen seventy, and from that point on, it's just been weed and alcohol my whole life. Which is that's pretty good. Yeah, pretty safe. So, and it's yeah. a, it's a very nice combination. You know. Did you get into weed the same time you started getting into Jamaican music? That, no, no, no. Wait, I started smoking in 1966, okay. so I've been smoking like 46 years. So you get to see the progression of it. Is it has? Oh yeah. It's like you got to see this arc of uh, how how weed has evolved, especially in California now. Yeah. I mean, would you ever? Did you ever imagine it would be the way it is now? No. I mean, the weed we're smoking now. My guess is it's probably a thousand percent stronger than <laughs> what thousand. we started. No, I'm not joking. I believe it. I'm not yeah. joking because what we were smoking before was like, you know, what. The only thing that was available was what what would now be considered the worst weed possible, like yeah. dirt weed or whatever. There, and there and there were it was full of seeds, full oh, of yeah. stems, and just crappy, dried out, terrible weed. You know, I remember but, getting stuff. And I grew up in Minnesota. I remember getting stuff in high school that now, if I looked at it, it looks like mulch. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. used to call it Mojave Red. It was, <laughs> it was dry and brown and once uh, oh god, when somebody. Uh, Somebody, I had a line on 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 selling and uh, on getting a pound, mm -hmm. you know. So I I needed some money at the time, and I told people it was from Catalina. Catalina. <laughs> I wanted it to be an uh, uh, that's uh, exotic. Yeah, an exotic island. It's grown on so, buffalo is, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and believe me, it sold much better if you said it was from Catalina. Because this is Catalina Gray, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is light years. Uh, yeah. So I did that for about two weeks, and then the Catalina thing stopped sticking. No, I just. I felt uncomfortable yeah. being a criminal, really. Yeah, it's kind of a thing that's not the best. So why do that when you can do music, right? Yeah, yeah. I, just, I want to talk more about the Jamaican stuff and how you got into that. Because that, what, what, when did you start listening to, when did you really get into Jamaican music? Well, let me see. So I, I, I say Jamaican music because a lot of times people, when I, I think when you say reggae, people, it's a lot, there's a big percentage of people who just turn off, who like associate reggae with... That's just whatever they've Bob Marley legend they've heard wafting out of a, a Toyota 4Runner on some frat house or something like that. They just immediately zone, zone out of it when they don't realize the, how much history there is in all the Jamaican music. Yeah, there's history, culture, all kinds of things. And there's so many different, um, you know, subdivisions. Oh, yeah. Of, I mean, so deep. You know, there's so many different aspects to it and everything. But it's... Uh, I think it's a really the thing that we that stimulates us most the people that enjoy Jamaican music it's the uh it's the mindset of the people doing it. Mm -hmm. If you go to the island you begin to understand 
the inspiration for it, you mm-hmm. know? If any writer anywhere in the world gets, um, whatever you call it, uh, when you can't... Writer's block. Writer's block. <laughs> right. I, how I got writer's block just thinking about it. Speaking writer's but, block. But if you get... It, if you get writer's block or if you're uh, meant to be in a doing something creative and you and nothing is coming, just get on a plane and go to Jamaica and stay there for a few days and everything's going to open up. Wow. A whole door will open that. up and you'll it doesn't matter what you're trying to do. You know, you don't it, it, it doesn't have to have anything to do with their culture, but their culture will stimulate your okay. creative thought. I never heard that. I think I have to go to Jamaica now. Yeah. I don't even have virus block. I think I just need to. Need well, to you know, it. it's just stimulating when you, you, you know, you hear little kids and mm-hmm. old uh, grannies and, and they all kind of talk hip. You know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that, a, that's a shock in itself. And uh, yeah, somebody were to go and they go, it's up the street, man. Yeah, just go up the street and go, go right up there, you know, whatever. And they, and uh, so, yeah, their culture is just like, in some ways, you know, it would seem to be the opposite of ours or, or, or backwards or upside down or whatever, you know, it's, and, uh, you know, like when they're small there, they're given, um, like if they have a stomach ache or something mm-hmm. like that, they're given herb tea right? and it's marijuana, you know? Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. And, it, and anybody, you know, could do that, you know, it's, it would do that to their child, you know? And it's not so, considered no, crazy no, no. or, uh-uh. yeah. No, it's, so there's lots of different, cha- you know, differences in the in in society there. Wait, so so how did you first get into that whole the whole scene? Well, I grew up here in the in the rock thing, and um, so I heard a few of the songs uh, before I moved to London in 1970. Right, but I wrote, well, really wasn't thinking about it, and mm-hmm. I really didn't know too much about it or anything like that. But when I moved to London, it was part of the culture. You yeah, know? that's because they have a lot of a lot of people from Jamaica. A lot of what people from the West Indies yeah. moved there. Yeah, right? they they had uh, you know uh, England was uh, well, Jamaica was a part of the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. and um, and so in the fifties when they needed labor they in had, England, right? They they put out this campaign and said something like travel to the mother country on a ship for like. The equivalent of like one or two dollars, mm-hmm. you know. They were encouraging people to travel to, to England and work doing menial labor, and um, so that was the influx of Jamaicans. A lot of them came over in the in the fifties, right, from Jamaica. And uh, but when I got there, I didn't like it. I didn't like the music, and the reason why in was, Jamaica or London? No, London. Okay. The reason why was because London's version of reggae was all geared towards trying to have an, uh, hit singles. Okay. So and so they would put strings all over the ooh. music and they would and they would have bubblegum kind of por- yeah. choruses and, and it was the worst kind of bad pop, mm-hmm. you know. And when I got the job at the NME, I was also the singles review editor or whatever you want to call it. I was doing the singles reviews every week. And... About one third of the records I would receive were Jamaican forty fives. Oh man, and this is this is in the late nineteen seventy two. Oh man, I can't imagine the stuff you were getting. So then all of all of a sudden, and and, and I always felt that I need to I needed to listen to every record. Right. You know, there would be like seventy records a week that I would get, and I w- I wanted to hear every one and make sure that. You know, if there was a great one and the artist had never been heard of, then I wanted to expose it. You know, mm-hmm. so. Uh, after a while, I would hear one of these Jamaican ones would 
get my attention. I go, wow, that's not bad for a reggae record, mm-hmm. you know, because I've just been hearing the wrong thing in the air. And and then it became more and more until I was pulled into it. And, and at first, I kind of liked the ones um, that had what reminded me of uh, – similar vocals to American soul music. Okay, you yeah. Know? That was something that I could relate to. And and then after that, I you know, I get, just got into a lot of the other artists and stuff like that. When so I was... Who were some people like, like Dennis Brown or some like people... I'm trying to think who sounds soulful that... Yeah, didn't that was that was yeah yeah those guys uh, do sound like that. I'm trying to think there was uh, they used to have these launching parties for albums and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. and they had one in a in a real posh uh, London hotel for this American singer Johnny Nash. Okay, yeah, and And he he did. uh, I can see clearly now, which isn't that a cover of? No, no, he wrote it. He wrote it, but isn't that doesn't have something to do with? With Jamaica or some sort. Well, it's it's a kind of a semi yeah, reggae song, reggae it, pop okay. song. Yeah. But um, so he had been Johnny Nash had been going to Jamaica for a few years and recording there as well, right? So uh, his band played at this reception. It was it was a big reception with like it had the whole hog, like it had like a, a completely uh open bar it had like completely tons of, open yeah complete and it had like dinner you know right. the, every, it had everything all you know needs, what I'm all needs like, catered to yeah it. that's and and that always drew the british press like the free alcohol really? and especially yeah. free food they would always show up right and so as a part of that night um his band was kind of uh, there were Jamaican guys in his band, mm-hmm. and he had African guys in his band. Cool. He had really good musicians. <clears throat> and then at the very end, after he got through performing, he said, now I want to introduce you to somebody that wrote a couple of songs on my album, and he's a very good friend of mine. Here's Bob Marley. Oh, wow. This is 1972. 72. 72, okay. So uh, this is prior to the deal with Island Records. Right, and this is after... he. He wasn't in the Skylights anymore at this point, right? No, this is like after they recorded with Lee Perry. Okay. And before they signed with Island. Right. And they were doing, they were just kind of going around doing this work with Johnny Nash, and they were hoping it would lead to some sort of international activity, but it didn't really help them that much. You right. Know? And so what uh, Bob came out and sang this song, Reggae on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he was dressed kind of like an American guy. Like right. he had an afro and he wore kind of bright, slick clothes and everything. Okay. And he was kind of dancing like a boogaloo, James Brown kind yeah, of style. Yeah. And, um, and so that was my first exposure to him. And then l- later on, after the Island Deal, in 1973, I think, I was still at the enemy and I had met Chris Blackwell, the guy who... Uh, founded Island Records, okay. and he asked me to come by the recording studio while they were recording the second album, Burning. Oh, wow. And um, actually, there was one more time before then. So after the Johnny Nash thing, the Rolling Stones asked me to go to Jamaica uh, and interview them while they're doing this album, Goat's Head Soup, mm-hmm. in Jamaica. And when I learned that I was going to do that, I approached Island Records and I said, look, I'm going to be in Jamaica anyway. Set me up with your interviews with your artists. Uh-huh. So I did an interview in December 1972 before Catch a Fire, the first uh, Whalers uh, Island album came out. <clears throat> I did this album, I mean, this interview with uh, with Peter, Bunny, and Bob wow. uh, all together. And 
And so that was the second time mm-hmm. I, I, you know, this time I actually got to meet him, got to talk to him, everything like that. And the third time was when Blackwell asked me to come by the studio and they were recording. And um, and the odd thing that happened that time was at first we we're just I was just watching the session go by and it was in it and it was an hour or two. And then they took a break and 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 Blackwell asked me what I thought of this one particular song. He said, how do you think this will do in America? Mm-hmm. And he played me get up, stand up. And uh, <laughs> but it was well. but it was slow. The, <laughs> oh, they had recorded the song right. slow, like rock steady speed, but right. very slow. And I, I said, well, the song's a potential an- anthem, but in America, in order to be an anthem, it has to be more urgent. Mm-hmm. It can't be a laid back thing saying, get up, stand up. It can't be like that. Right. It has, has to be more insistent. And I didn't know anything about the technical side of the studio at the time, but mm-hmm. he said to the engineer, he said, can you speed it up with the VSO, which is very speed oscillator. And it, okay. And it, and it can just speed up the tape. And so he sped it up, and I think it was like about a quarter tone or something, which is a little bit faster. Yeah. And he said, well, is that it? Is that the right tempo? And I go, no, it's not fast enough. You know. So he did it again, hyped it even more. And if you think about it, that whole thing I told you about sugar, it mm-hmm. kind of enters the picture there probably right. a little bit in terms of my own subjective taste yeah and then uh so once they ramped it up really a lot i go that's it that's the tempo right there wow and that's the way the whole world knows the song they sped it up like that you know just off of me making that suggestion and um so anyway that was that and then shortly after that like i would say a couple of months within a couple of months i had gotten tired of being a journalist and there was it was it sounds like an ideal job in a way i was only there about a year and a half i got to meet everybody in the uk industry i swear to god record companies managers groups you know i just met everybody in that amount of time right and uh, this is in london yeah. yeah and so i was i was just and the other thing was that the requirements of the job were very high pressured. Like young, only young people could could do it. Because you can't. You you'd can't. have to knock out three thousand words a week. You'd have to do like three interviews. You'd have to transcribe the interviews yourself, and then write the articles. You didn't have time to do a second draft. And on top of that, I was doing the singles reviews too. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was real manic work. You know, it's a job. Uh, yeah. yeah, you had to run out and find. You know, go to the source where the interview was, where the where the. Uh, you know the interviewee was mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff and uh so anyway it was just like being on a real frantic roller coaster ride and the thing that bothered me the most was not being able to uh do a second draft or improve the writing it okay. just went out the, whatever you wrote the first time it had to be printed you know right. so um i wanted to get out of that situation and i called at, uh blackwell up and i asked him for a job at the record company i just said look i'll do anything i'll sweep the floor i don't care what i just want to i want exposure to working for at a record company and i want the the uh you know i want to have the opportunity to work my way up and where's island located right now there there it was located in uh, uh an area called notting hill gate okay this is in london yeah, yeah. And, and and that was kind of a very eclectic area mm-hmm. that had like hippies and people from the West Indies there. Right. And um, so, you know, I went over there, talked to him, and it led to a job that I ended up being his right hand guy. 
you know, for the rest of the time I was in England, I was really working directly with and for him. And so he was my mentor and I learned a lot of things from him. This is an island, yeah. Yeah. And so, so what point then did you, did you make it over to Jamaica then? Well, December 1972, I went over to interview the Rolling Stones. Right. And so that was the first time I, I was there. And then when I started working for Island, I was going over there all the time. I was, uh, I probably went there like 15 or 20 times in the wow. 70s. So did you Because I was working with reggae, so I was going over there all the time. So that's when you really got into the whole reggae scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's it like being, I mean, you're a white guy. Yeah. And you're I'm in this scene that's all blacks in, in Jamaica. Yeah. Do you, do you ever feel like out of place or sort of a... No. You ever felt unwelcome or anything at all? Uh, there are always people that, you know, that judge you, you know, but it wasn't the majority. Right. Uh, in Jamaica, the artists themselves, they view you as an opportunity to further their career. Okay. You know, so. Because that, at that point in time, most of the studios and at least the record companies were run by white people, right? No. No, they weren't? Not at all? No. Well, in, in London or in Jamaica? or Not well, in Jamaica. In Jamaica. Jamaica, it was run by guys who had like an ironclad situation where. So like Jack Ruby or something, huh? Yeah. Jack, Jack Ruby was actually, he was kind of a character. He's a, he was really... Um, he ran counter to a lot of the other producers. I mean, the most distinctive thing about him in terms of uh, the island is that every producer in Jamaica was based in Kingston, except mm -hmm. for Jack Ruby. Where was he based? Ocho Rios. Okay, is that like, I don't know where that is. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, it's a tourist town on the, um, I think it's the east side of the island mm -hmm. and, and uh, about halfway up the island so he had to take a major trip just to go into Kingston right. he would arrive in a uh, a pickup truck with about eight guys in the back mm -hmm. and some of those guys would have uh, machetes and stuff like that <laughs> really he was a heavy guy Jack Ruby was a heavy guy so was he I mean uh, I don't know I don't know whether he ever started trouble but he, no one started trouble nobody, with him. Nobody, it wasn't smart to try to start trouble with him. That's is that how a lot of those guys were? Because they seem like, you yeah. know, I've seen the Jamaican movies and stuff, all those guys, they seem like they're really tough because they have yeah. they have all these guys who have, they're always at them to, people want to record so much. And Well, the number one label where a lot of the guys started off was uh, Studio One, Cox mm -hmm. and Dodd. And he was known, I mean, most people have the impression outside of Jamaica that he was a you know, a peaceful man and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, but he didn't that's pay, I think but he didn't pay royalties, right? Oh, so he was, well, I heard a story that, you know, an artist approached him in the street and he beat him down. Beat up Coxon. No, the guy, the, the, the Coxon beat, beat him down because he asked for royalties. You know, he stopped man. him in the street and said, Hey, can I, can I get some of my money? You know, got oh. beat up. You're listening to Twisting the Wind with Johnny Pemberton on the Feral Audio Network. Yeah. Who's there? What the hell is going on here? Who's there? What? What are you talking about, man? Didn't you hear that super loud, scary sound that just interrupted the radio? Oh, uh, yeah, it did. It's actually going to keep happening until people donate. Uh, you mean there's going to be scary fart sounds playing all the time until people donate to Feral Audio? Goddamn right that's going to keep happening. You hear it? Yeah. Okay, uh, please, please donate. This is not a sustainable situation, audio-wise. This is uh, pretty bad right now. Uh, just, I'm, I'm very scared. I'm just genuinely very frightened right now. Please donate. PayPal. Uh, 
Credit cards are fine. I think it's all fine. You can even... It's just, it's not going to stop, is it? No way, man. Radio explosions. Okay. Uh, Maybe we'll try to play some music over this. Uh, Feral audio. We're back. So we're talking about how Clement Cox and Dodd, who is the founder, owner of Studio One Records, which is probably the most prolific of all recording studios in Jamaica, right? Yeah. Uh, How he... uh, was not as nice as a lot of people seem to think. Well, he never paid. I mean, I worked with the Heptones. I produced an album called Night Food. And it's a pretty great record. Leroy Sibbles, was, the lead singer uh, of the Heptones, mm-hmm. Leroy Sibbles, was the, a session bass player there mm-hmm. You know, and, and for many years. And um, he never got paid. He uh, eventually moved on to other labels and other producers and just kept going through him you know kept kept going from one to the next and um when i interviewed bob marley in december 1972 that was really the thing that uh he emphasized to me was that um he didn't get paid from coxon and he thought uh on his return to jamaica he came over here and he lived in delaware for a year in 1966 Uh i think and when he went back he was determined to start his own label uh, so they could get paid, mm-hmm. and the waiters started their own label. What they, what they discovered was that they had a big hit record during that time when they had their own label, and the pressing plant overpressed the amount of copies, and then sold them directly to the record stores. So they got ripped off so by they, the pressing plant. They got they they went around them. Yeah. Well. So then. They found that the solution was it had to be foolproof all the way through. They had to own every part of the process. Okay, so so, so they bought vertical the, integration, right? Yeah. So they bought a a pressing plant which still exists to this day. What's what's the name of the pressing plant? Tough Gong. Okay, Tough Gong. Yeah. So yeah. if you if you ever get a forty five from Jamaica, like they press for other people mm-hmm. as well, and they've recently made a statement that they will never stop pressing vinyl. Like awesome. there's there were That's rumors great. there were rumors about two years ago that Tough Gong was going to stop pressing vinyl but they came back with that like we'll never stop pressing vinyl but they own the pressing plant and they always get paid for that reason that's amazing i didn't realize that marley was such a entrepreneur such a i had no idea that he did such a thing he was you know he he, uh, he was a real in a lot of ways he was a real modest guy uh-huh. you know um and he was I, I think when they made the documentary, they did it the right way because they talked to a lot of different people, and they, and you could the the viewer could kind of connect the dots and come up with their own impression right. of because he you know he he didn't really he wasn't the kind of guy that would like um, reveal himself all the way to anybody really you know he was he was kind of more introverted so um, you know you got a chance to you know put it all together when you saw that but he. Um, he was a very Marley was a guy who was uh, very 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 serious about music mm-hmm. and about um, making money. Yeah, no, no, no. He well, was not a, serious about that, it. He like, you know what? I think the he wanted to he wanted to be he wanted to affect people. Right, mm-hmm. that was more important than money. He never talked about money. Bob never talked about money. He wanted he he liked. He liked g- getting what he deserved. Exactly. That's what, that's what I mean to say is that he like, there's so many people in the industry, in the music industry, even earlier before reggae, where they didn't, there's, 
they don't know their own worth a lot of times. Yeah. I think that happens that happens in the comedy community a lot too, is that comedians let themselves just be totally dicked over, not paid at all, even though they're super talented. It's a, it's a thing where it sounds like he realized his own self-worth in an industry and and called people on it and made it happen. Yeah, he... He, he he knew that the music business on the business side was kind of a cesspool, mm-hmm. so he had a pit bull of a manager. And, okay. Um, That's all you have to have. You have to be nice, and you have the person who's representing you be the asshole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but, the but key. The, I mean, in the movie, what was revealed in the documentary was that the when he found the manager was stealing money from him, he went up to the guy's hotel room with three or four of his friends and mm-hmm. beat him up. Oh man! Had him beat up, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's it's it goes back to that same thing. Like all Bob ever wanted was the money he deserved. That's right. all, uh-huh. you know. Um, and he wasn't all, and he wasn't always thinking and talking about money or anything like that either. But um, his thing was really. I, I I remember being there before he was famous. There was a meeting that he had with Chris Blackwell, and it was about career planning for Bob. Right. And then at the end result of that meeting, Blackwell told me after Bob had left, he just said one sentence and he goes bob wants to be thought of in the same sentence as uh james brown bob dylan Jimi hendrix and you know he just named like four giant guys i think it worked yeah he never got a chance to see it right you know bob marley's popularity in his lifetime was kind of like most diffs uh, popularity right now as a rapper you know very well yeah very well respected but not the biggest guy around you know mm-hmm. bob was he, he held a unique position in terms of being what they called a the first third world superstar okay you know, that's that's where his most unique thing came from but when you compare him to all the other artists around like okay in los angeles you know bob mostly played the roxy a club that holds 300 people mm-hmm. he never played the greek theater he never played uh the hollywood bowl he never played the hollywood palladium he never could draw that many people in one place he just wasn't that big back then. It wasn't that big, oh. you know? So if he could draw 5,000 people, he would have played the Palladium, wow. you know? If he could draw more than that, then he would have played the Greek Theater or the Hollywood Bowl, and he never played those places. And he was the biggest reggae artist of that time. Oh, definitely. By far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that, so if, if he's only that popular, then all these other groups are even What it really st- margins, shows is, is, you know, how the the legend grew after he, he passed and yeah. now you know he's one of the biggest artists ever like his his sales are um right up there with any rock group with the beatles mm-hmm. and with the uh led zeppelin and all those kind of people that sell tons and tons of records and Jimi hendrix all those people like bob marley's records are uh, they, they sell his music sells as much as theirs does in that same category you know all right music break number two what is this exactly? This is um, yeah, what's, it's a forty-five in the bay that is on, pressed on clear. It's a clear flexi. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a picture of this and we'll have it on the uh, the site. This uh, is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. The artists are um, Nick Andre and E. DeBoss. E. DeBoss is in a number of different groups. He's in one called the Pendletons, and they have a record. Oh, that, that stuff is amazing. Yeah, the Pendletons Ooh. record was released about a year ago. Oh, I wanted that so badly, and I found out about it. Like, st- It's a modern soul 45 that sells any from between 80 and $160 on eBay now, yeah. but you could have bought it for 5 or $10 a year ago. Oh, so, so good. That Pendleton's track, we'll link to that too. What's yeah. that one? That, oh, well, I've, got it, I've got it here. Really? Yeah. We should play it. We should play that after this. Okay. okay. So, Edaboss is half, or what, he was, he helped, 
create the Pendleton's project and and was heavily involved with that. And it's on his label, Sle okay. Slept On. Slept this on. record is also on Slept On Records. Um, it just as a side note, um, like I wrote an article on him and his partner, uh, Myron and E., and so that's going to appear in Wax Poetics. Oh, great. Cool. And so we kind of became friendly through the process of doing that. And in, in, uh, so Boss and I are going to do a mix CD together. Oh, man. Was that going to be put on Unslept On? We're not sure exactly how, we're, we're, how it's going to be released, but um, we're splitting you know, the time. And the theme of it is we're slowing down 45s to 33. Oh, man. I, you just like, that's like... My favorite thing in the entire world is what you just said. Is that's a lot of times I'll make mixes. I call it. Uh, I used to call it. I used to speed up records. I used to speed up um, thirty three inch and play them at forty five. I used to call it wrongful forty five. I got in a lot of trouble from people. Not trouble. People would just be like, "Why? Why do you do that to Stevie Wonder, man?" I'm like, it "Just it's a different sound. It sounds cool." And as I've gotten older, I started to do the opposite. There's some songs. There's this one. There's a song by um, what the hell's the name of the band? Sugarloaf, Green Eyed Lady. Yeah, yeah. I used to play that on the radio in college and play it slowed down. I'd say this is Isaac Hayes covering Green Eyed Lady. And people would believe, believe me because it sounds, because that guy's voice is so high. When you slow it down to 33 and pitch it up like, you know, 8% or something, it sounds legitimately like a soul band covering that British psych song. I was in, the, I was doing a kind of a park barbecue type of thing in Long Beach a few weeks ago and uh, I dropped the. Buster Rhymes' big hit, If Your Hands Could See You, whatever the hell it's called. And I played it at 33 on purpose. And there were people in the crowd that were looking at me like, this guy has no clue. He doesn't even know he's playing <laughs> yeah. it at the wrong tempo. That's so funny. Yeah, some people just assume it's like blasphemy to them when it's really like you're just having fun and it's making something sound different than it already has been. You've heard it a thousand well, times. See, the thing is, is that in order to find one of those tunes that works at, at 33... You, I don't know, my estimate would be if you go through a thousand records, you'll probably find like five or mm -hmm. eight or something. Because really what you're looking for is something that um, takes on a new life yeah. when you slow it down. Yeah. It's not just a tune slowed down. You're here now hearing it for the first time in a new way. Totally, yeah. So that's what we've done. And it, and it, it man, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. I also think it kind of reveals the nature of a lot of... Uh, musicianship because if you can slow it down it still sounds good so that, mean, that means they're, they're fucking tight because yeah, yeah. they're really on it yeah right yeah okay so we're gonna hear uh, Nobody Knows by yeah. Nick Andre and Ada Boss whoa is it gonna work here we go Sliding out the window like hot pants under I hope I don't see your mother Cause I don't need no family tree Dipping around the coda Trying to be with that girl I see But they don't know me And she don't know me And you don't know me Well, motherfucker, nobody knows You don't know me And they don't know me Well, she don't know me And motherfucker, Nobody knows Nobody knows 
betting on the street by the light of the moon. They're after me with all of her brothers. Blasting through the ballroom, swinging door shutters. They're looking for some drama, but they don't know who it could be. A ballroom full of brothers, and all the motherfuckers look just like me, but they don't know me, and she don't know me, and you don't know me. You see, motherfuckers, nobody knows. They don't know me, and you don't know me, well, she don't know me, well, motherfucker, nobody knows. That's really amazing. It's so like, like a, just a, such a, it's just a vamp. That's all it is. Yeah. That's nice. That's Nick Andre, Eat a Boss, Nobody Knows. Yeah. Uh, maybe if you look online, uh, you might find out more information or whether it's actually available mm -hmm. to purchase. Because it says on the record uh, that it's promo only, but uh, I don't know whether, you know, perhaps they release this clear flexi for certain uh, purposes and then they mm -hmm. might pr also have pressed it on wax i i have to talk to e and find out what what the story is but cool it's it's recent it's been out you know just uh in a, a few weeks it's such an interesting thing now with like this soul stuff where it's like this it's like a weird combination because it's there's sampling in there so it's like a hip-hop track, but it's obviously not a hip-hop song. It's not a rap song. Yeah, I think that's what's going on a lot right yeah. now is is that, you know, cross-pollination of forms and stuff like that because um, the hip-hop thing kind of came back after Amy Winehouse. I mean, the uh, the soul thing came right. back after Amy Winehouse. So right. people have taken different routes to exploring that. And then the hip-hop thing, uh, E grew up, a, a you know, involved with hip-hop and really mm -hmm. take that was the thing that really kind of seduced him when he was growing up so there's a lot of people that come from that background and they're trying to f figure out what can they what else can they do what what kind of flavors can they add and how yeah. what new combos can they come up with and stuff like that what i like is that it's not, it doesn't call attention to that it's not like oh this is a sample we're looping it yeah. sounds like it kind of could be a band but it yeah, I hate when it's like the when the format is like what it's all about. Yeah, it's like you know doesn't detract from the music. I hate when there's rules. Like, yeah, yeah, you know when people are following rules and then you keep hearing the same thing over and over mm -hmm. again because they're following what is sp supposedly traditionally accepted within those that style of music. Right. It's to me, it's more refreshing to hear people come with new ideas. You know, right. in some that way. Just not even thinking about. It. Can you uh, talk a little bit about how, um, like, the birth of of Jamaican music and birth of reggae? Because then there's like a really interesting story behind it. I think that a lot of people don't realize is about how how relatively new that music is. I don't know. You know, I don't know really a lot about it. But what I do know is that, um, and, and what I always thought was a big coincidence is that Jamaican music kind of sounded like other people's music, right? Until the year of independence. Which is 1962? Yeah. yeah. 1962, 
they pulled away from British rule and started mm-hmm. their own government and, and self-rule. Mm-hmm. And the minute that started, ska music started. Right. The same year, ska music started. So that, to me, I always thought was remarkable. And, you know, that where that came from is, is pretty well documented. But if you listen to a song like uh, Fats Domino, uh, a song called Be My Guest by Fats Domino. Okay. There's an upbeat guitar in that that song. Yeah. So as he's singing it, come on, baby. And it's on the upbeat. It sounds like Skaha, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what happened is that they, uh, it's hard to explain what happened on the, on the, into the drums like why did how did the drums end up sounding like something from another planet yeah um it's well clearly aliens visited jamaica (laughs) and when i mean that's that's what's what i've heard that's what i think is probably happens aliens visited they they put this huge crystal in the ground and it vibrated at this frequency that that some certain drummers heard and then yeah that's how you got Rocksteady. That makes sense. <laughs> that's my Rocksteady that's theory. What it, that's what I read on Wikipedia. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I edited it. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> to me, like the uh, Rocksteady is the first thing that I heard that was like, this is so much different than anything I've ever heard before because it's kind of slower. Rocksteady was a weird thing because Ska um, existed for, uh, I don't know, like something like three and a half years or something right. like that. And then the entire Rocksteady movement la- lasted 18 months. It's you know? oh, so cool. Yeah, it's weird. It's so amazing. Uh, but it, but, but I guess what happened was um, what, what eighteen months we're talking about here. This is like it was around nineteen sixty eight. Okay, that that was a, a big year for Rocksteady. Right. And the Whalers were Rocksteady, and the Heptones were Rocksteady. A lot of the vocal trios were Rocksteady, and, like the Gay Lads. Yeah, and pa- they and, Paragons, right? That's a pretty yeah. Cool. All the, all those guys they came along and they they so they were like the new kids in town mm-hmm. you know the, uh, the vocal trios and the rock steady rhythm and and it brought the um the tempo way down to a more relaxed tempo and i think that represents the island better mm-hmm. it's 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 more of a laconic you know laid-back place I, I remember reading something i don't know if this is true but the, a big part of rock steady's birth was because the summer of 68 was so damn hot in Jamaica that people couldn't dance to the traditional ska speed. That's so easy they, to believe, yeah. They just slowed it down, and you had this ridiculously funky kind of yeah. sound that was rock That was a big influence on the Whalers. When, they, when, it, when the three guys were in the band, Peter, Bunny, and Bob, they, I think they inherently wrote a lot of songs at that tempo. And then after Peter uh, and Bunny left... Uh, the first album that Bob did without him was um, Natty Dread, and from that point on, it was it was more progressive or more new or whatever you want to call it. It 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 just kind of veered away from the traditional uh, feel of the right. rock steady songs. But when they wrote, like seriously, when they wrote Get Up Stand Up, they they recorded it at a rock steady oh. kind of tempo. Nice, yeah. So, were you buying a lot of records uh, every time you went to Jamaica? Yeah. So you have yeah. so you have stuff that's just ridiculous stuff that people pay. I was just lucky because, uh, like, when I went, the, there's a lot of um, record stores in downtown Kingston, mm-hmm. and the record producers would quite often own a record store as well. Right. That's like their. It's like their direct. Yeah. What do they call that? Like it's like a, it's an outlet. Yeah. It's exactly. like a. It's like going to the. Uh, the warehouse or yeah. the outlets. It's an outlet store yeah. for records. So I I was able to go to all those and 
the first time I went there, the, I was like the only white guy walking around. So what was that like then to be the only, do you, do you feel like, is, you're not in danger, are you? I think it's because of my size, I never felt, Okay. you know, yeah. I'm 6'3", so I never really felt like I was in trouble or anything. But this but, is, these are, what area are we talking about here? Because downtown Kingston, isn't that? It's, it's rough. I don't know, the, where's Trenchtown? But once you've survived two or three rough neighborhoods, you kind of feel that you, you're okay wherever you go. I mean, I've been to Africa, I've been to Brazil, I've been to places where people say, don't go to this area, don't right. go. I mean, I read, I think in a Lonely Planet, you know, when I went to um, Brazil, they said, you know, they advised the tourists not to walk down a certain street at night. And you and did. I, and I, yeah. You did it just to I did it. I just walked planet. down the center of the street in case anything did happen. I was more prepared. I could see somebody coming at me. Right. And so later on, I reported to a friend of mine. I said, yeah, I walked down that street at night and nothing happened. And they said, well, the guys are there. But when they saw you, they probably didn't. <laughs> they, they, they didn't think that you were the right victim. You yeah, know? That's a, it's, a, it's a crime of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I have a, I have a hockey stick in my car. They'll take around if I'm ever in a shitty neighborhood. And a hockey stick is something where it looks weird enough to where you're carrying a hockey stick for a reason. The guy's obviously going to a hockey game or something. So the cops wouldn't hassle you for having a weapon. But then again, if you're going to mug someone, you're probably going to wait till the guy with a hockey stick passes until someone without a hockey stick exactly. passes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's my... my uh, my crime prevention technique that I almost never use. <laughs> nice to think about. Yeah, so Wait, so you're down you're down the downtown Kingston. Yeah, there was there was one stuff. guy as I was walking by. He was sitting in the doorway of a of a shop, and uh, as I walked by, he goes, uh, "White man, go home." And uh, I turned around and I smiled at him and I said, "You have a good day too." And I just kept walking. Really? Yeah. You know, as long uh, he was obviously trying to ruffle my feathers, and as yeah. long as you, uh, you know, as long as he doesn't achieve that, then you know, there's nothing to be worried about. So That's I right. never. I remember once I was recording the Heptones in 1975, and I gave Leroy a ride back to uh, a place in in Trenchtown. Mm -hmm. And that's Trenchtown <clears throat> is that is the rough roughest part of Kingston. Right? One of them. I mean, there, there's. At the at that time, there's probably four or five neighborhoods that you wouldn't go to. There's one called Lizard Town, one called Jonestown, Denim Town, I think, and then uh, in Trench Town. So there's like there's like right. three or four or five places you wouldn't want to go. Now you wouldn't want to go to most places in Kingston. It's become worse. It's way worse. What happened? Crack cocaine. Okay. You know, cocaine itself around 1980 came in, and then after. After cocaine came rampant violence. I mean, there was violence before that, but, you know, nonsensical violence in every, any part of town at any time of day. So so you can't do what today, what you used to do in Kingston. I would probably still do it. You but, would. But, yeah, I mean, I I went to a part of town that was safe the last time I was there. Could that, I do it? That, no. <laughs> there you go. That's you, what I want to know. You would be mincemeat. <laughs> yeah. It's such a shame. I want so badly. No, I mean, to, you could go with yeah. somebody. Right, right. You know, the best way when you go to uh, a foreign country or whatever, and if you want to see some excitement or something like that, it's just go with a local guy. And, right. And it... And if anybody ever tried to say or do anything, they'd go, he's okay, he's okay. Right, they get, you get to get a pass. Yeah, you get a pass, yeah. I mean, that's most of what I did 
when I was there, you know, most most of a lot of my trips, I was surrounded by local guys. Or you know, if you're surrounded by one of the guys from the Heptones, or yeah, they're gonna respect know, you if with Leroy yeah. Sibbles is on your yeah. side. I mean, did, did you pick up any patois at all? I understood it better understood as, it. Okay. As, as time went on. But when I interviewed Bob in December 1972, I had questions written out and. Uh, I would just go to the next question when he finished an answer because I didn't quite, oh, I didn't understand what he said That's half crazy. the time. And but the more I hung out, and the more I understood, and uh, it's uh, I never really got into um, imitating it too much. Yeah, there's sort of, a fine line I think that certain people choose to cross yeah that's it's scary like, it's when you start seeing people kind of get really enthusiastic about the culture and they're wearing red gold and green yeah. all over the place and it's just to me it, it's i don't know i just i never went down that i feel like it's kind of disrespectful in a way i feel like you get respected more if you don't do that because you're not as i know i know who i am i'm a white guy who grew yeah, exactly. up in minnesota and i'm yeah. not uh, that's not who I am. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But I can be interested in that, and I can yeah. really uh, have a lot of respect for that, but I don't think think there's a line you cross and you start to imitate it as though it was your own. Yeah, I, yeah. I could never get, uh, really get comfortable doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's, with my friends, you know, I'll sometimes go, yeah, I'm on, yeah, I'm on, or whatever. Just, just do a little thing here or there, whatever, and it's just in fun and jest or whatever, but I... Which never seriously try It's like to, saying y'all when you're Yeah, yourself. exactly. Yeah. You can do it, get away with that. Yeah. But um, where were we now? We're talking about you buying records back in the day. Oh, yeah. The so the, the record stores, stone. like, I was shocked. Like, um, I remember going into a store and looking through the racks, and I found Stevie Wonder's first album sealed, and it, and it looked as though it had been there the whole time. So that, was, that album came out, I think, in 1962 yep. or, or three. And and at the time it was 1972. So ten years later, the record's still sitting in the mm -hmm. rack with shrink wrap on it, and um, and that was so that was strange. Like there was uh, there was you never knew what you were going to find. It, to be honest, in Jamaica, like they have um, an affection for a lot of different kinds of music that some of which people just wouldn't imagine. But I think country and Western music has always been popular there. No way, that's crazy. Yeah. They don't, it, it, it doesn't they don't come discriminate. out. It doesn't come out that much, but they, they have a strong, you know, they like that a lot. And uh, I remember reading about how uh, Charlie Parker, that's what he would always play on jukeboxes would be country music. Well, country music is very similar to soul music. Yeah. It's very, very similar. Like mm -hmm. a, a great country song, you know, like a Hank Williams type of song. Um, is very similar to a Southern Soul song. Mm -hmm. the, the subject matters will be the same. It's sung in a very heartfelt way. Yeah, it's really rooted. When, when people think of country and western, unfortunately, they think a, a lot of um, think of Toby Keith. Yeah, <laughs> of, bad pop versions. Think of, of some it. asshole singing yeah. about the flag and about how we gotta like not go to. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta burn up Iraq. Yeah. We gotta burn it down, America. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the unfortunate thing. But there's. There's a lot of soulful country music, you know, if you if you search for it, it's out there. And uh, but it's never really gone to a trendy phase, I don't think too much has yeah, it. I don't think so. Not not among like trendy people at least. Yeah. yeah. But Jamaicans have always kind of had an affection for that and uh, so going through the racks, you know, I would find um, really bizarre records like just half the time there wouldn't even be a label on it. There just it'd be a white 
label and somebody with handwriting on it and stuff like that. that and it, you could go into a store like I think there was a Woolworths there or some a, a department store similar to that. And and the records still were like that, like handwritten, handwritten and so rubber like, stamps and all that kind of stuff. I remember seeing getting a bunch of uh, records, um, Jamaican pressings, and seeing like I sort of got this a footprint in the vinyl or like because <laughs> they're so they're such horrible horrible pressings. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. the worst imaginable pressings. The other thing that I, I think one of the funniest things I ever saw is um, that there was an album jacket, right? But if you looked on the other side of the album was jacket. It a different album. No, nope. it was a Kellogg's cornflake box. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they man. turned that into an album cover somehow. Nothing's wasted. No. That's crazy. No, I went to another place where um, the the Heptones took me to this place. It was like a hole in the wall. It was on a, a road called Slipe Road. And they go, the drinks here, man, the, the, these are the best drinks in town. And it was variations of um, fruit drinks, mm -hmm. right? They have one called Sour Sop. And it sounds it, good. Yeah, it's from a. It, it comes from a tree. It's a very milky kind of drink, um, almost like a milkshake kind of thing. But the funny thing about it is that they serve them in all different sizes and shapes of bottles. So you could get it in a beer bottle or whatever. They just clean out bottles and, and then reuse them. Yeah, and reuse oh, cool. them, right? And um, so there was just like you know a whole array of different styles of bottles that they used. It's nice. So you were buying tons of records back then. And you're, yeah. So I, well, uh, let me see. In terms of the record collecting thing, I was buying music that I wanted to hear mm -hmm. when I was at, uh, in my teens. And when I moved to London in 1970, then I started thinking like a record collector. Okay. I started going, like, I, there. whenever I would come across records, even if I already owned them, if they were cheap, I would just keep buying it and buying it and buying it so uh so you've been collecting for almost 40 years now or, or more than 40 years from collecting yeah yeah with a collector's mentality over 40 years is yeah. your, your collection like continuous or did you ever did you ever like sell everything off and start over or, no so you pretty much have everything no no i mean i've, I've sold things over the years but see i i've changed philosophies okay um for maybe I, I would say about 10 years ago i i realized that i didn't want to have an archivist mentality anymore. That's kind of like a hoarder thing. It's kind yeah. of like a, it's kind yeah. of a selfish thing. In oh a way. yeah, the yeah. Hoard, the hoarder thing really. Uh, I was just buying records that anything that interested me in any way. This is you know this has got a good cover. This is the whatever like maybe on a forty five. I like the first three seconds of it. You know. And I would throw all these records, and eventually I had to get storage units. So I had 50,000 records and two storage units. This is when exactly? Um, I think it was like, oh, somewhere like 04, something like this. Okay, you know? so 50,000 records. Yeah, 50,000 records. I had two storage <laughs> units. I was paying like almost five grand a year in storage fees, right? Which is a lot of money for something that's... Yeah, I mean... Yeah. And, for and, wax. Yeah, so... And then I... I, I when when you when that start, I've talked to other guys that are in the similar position. What you soon realize is that um, the difference between uh, you start to appreciate space more, right? You know, uh, before it was all records, records, records. You know, and the and 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 getting more of them, and then you started to suddenly you start to appreciate space. You're having to pay a lot for space uh -huh. and everything, and you're starting to figure that out. And now 
I collect in a more specific way. Okay. And it's to do with use, you know? Right. Is, am I going to spin, is this going to be a part of a mix sometime? Can I play this in front of a crowd as a DJ? All that kind of stuff. And then, of course, I'll still buy some things that I love just for my own personal, you know, use or something like that. Mm. But the majority, I would say 80%, I have, I feel like, my duty is to expose music, you know? Yeah. So that's really how I, I shop differently now. I don't, I walk out of the record store sometimes with like three or four records, whereas I used to walk out with armfuls of records. Okay. Well, that's what you do so well that I noticed is that you, a lot of DJs play stuff, they play, they pander a lot. That happens like so much. But every time I hear you play and every time I hear you mixes, it's always where you're spotlighting, you're, you're highlighting things that no one's ever heard or that people that very few people have heard, and you really think it's like a a thing that you got to get this out there because it's such a it's such a great thing you can't keep it to yourself kind of thing. Is that how you feel about it? Or? It's it's yeah. Uh, when I do mixes, it it is like that. Mm -hmm. I like to um, you know, like I say, um, expose music that I I'm passionate about, and and also different strains of music that um, you know maybe aren't her being heard as much and stuff like the last two or three years i've gone through a thing of peruvian garage music yeah. of the 1960s that's deep that's really deep you know so yeah. i was i was just going getting all this i was buying two types of music from peru one was 60s garage and the other was um their version of cumbia called chicha wow and chicha you know um the main part of the rhythm track sounds similar to other cumbias, mm -hmm. but what they do on top is they have either like a surf sounding guitar, a fuzz tone guitar, or wah wah. You know, oh, cool. and I love all those things. Yeah, those are <laughs> you know, all. They all rock out, right? And so they put this like monstrous type of guitar, this like or or a real melodic type of guitar, or this raunchy fuzz tone guitar. Mm -hmm over the cumbia rhythm and it really gives it some edge and so i've been buying a lot of that but nice. you know so i just keep moving i just keep moving ahead and moving through different strains and stuff like that and then when i perform live i have a um a philosophy like i the way i look at it is you know the audience quite often will have a group personality oh yeah and it's not and you know that from being a comedian you know yeah yeah exactly and um and I'm looking to be to, to create a bridge between my taste and their taste. I never play a record I don't like because I think they might like it. Right? Yeah. I don't do that. That's the that's such a huge thing that people do, and it's if you don't like it, it comes. You can people can feel it. Yeah. yeah. I only play music I'm passionate about, and people will sometimes be surprised that I like things that are commercial. Sometimes you know <laughs> they'll go, "Oh yeah, I heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you played this record, and they thought I had to play it or something, but they don't realize. I mean, no, I like that. I, I yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, and, and this, nobody understands this, but I actually like certain Katy, Katy Perry songs. You know? yeah, I don't play them. I don't, right. uh, but if, I, if somebody hired me for a wedding and said, you know, I want you to play California, whatever her thing California is. California Girls? Yeah, I would yeah. play it because I like the song. So that's the thing is like there's so many like music heads and people who are really into obscure stuff and DJs who are so embarrassed to like something that's yeah, popular. Yeah, yeah, When it's like, just get over it, I don't have it, that man. problem. I really yeah. don't have that. I, I, ever since I was in a, a band in the 60s, I've always had a pop side to my taste or a pop mentality in mm -hmm. a way. And... Uh, and then I like, you know, uh, a lot of more obscure sounding things as well. But um, I don't know. It's hard to explain. But 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 there's always I'm I'm usually looking for a feel a feeling of warmth. 
I think that uh, that mix you did the LA Love one is a pretty good example of that. It's such a crazy mix. What's the website that people can hear your mixes at? Dublab.com. Is it dublab.com slash? What's it slash? Well, if if you want to go directly to just my mixes, yeah. it would be dublab.com forward slash lab rats. Uh, after the word lab rats is another forward slash, then Danny hyphen Holloway. Okay. H-O-L-L-O-W-A-Y. Well, obviously, we'll put this on the site with links. But if you just go to... Here's a shortcut to doing right. it, right? If you go to dublab.com, they have that little window search thing, the little search thing like you any site does. Just type in your name. Just, no, just type in Holloway. Okay. Right? And then you're going to get all my mixes. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, they're all amazing. Yeah. We we have to have you back here to That's talk one of my favorite more. mixes, by the way, the one that you mentioned. I love that one. It's so great. It's so like diverse and weird and I remember seeing you DJ at this place, uh someplace downtown. It was like a stone's throw night. It was all you know, like the damn funk and um Mad Lib and all those, and Peanut Butter Wolf and all those guys. And it's always like hip hop heads there, you know. And you went up to the DJ and you played some kind of like like fifties loungy Song. It was like kind of like kind of like a George Shearing kind of thing. Everyone was just their minds were so blown because they were kind of like, "What the hell's going on here?" But they were also loving it at the same time because clearly, clearly, you know, you wouldn't be up there if all these guys didn't think you're the shit. So it was such a I don't know. Peanut Butter Wolf is he entered my life and and just you know pulled me into gigs that I would I wouldn't have been invited into like. Two or three gigs like that, and then I had. But a, it's so cool though, because it's such a great like change from everything else. And well, the, the, the I don't know what song what you're talking about, except that to me, there's certain songs that send chills up and down my spine, mm-hmm. and th- those are the ones I want to expose. Whether you know, and I, and I hope people are ready for it when yeah, I do it. And I think they are. I think in that environment, that's like pretty. You know, they they try to make it pretty open and. Res- but a lot of times when respect. I follow somebody else as a DJ, I'm looking to provide contrast and. Right. Um, a lot of times, if it's a dancing situation, I come real hard. Uh-huh. I come. I, I go in a certain area, no matter what style it is. But I go really hard. I. I you know what? I I nearly quit as a DJ in in '06. Nothing much was happening for me or anything, and. I went with a friend to Montreal. We went on a record digging trip to Montreal and, and somebody threw a gig. You heard that we were coming to town and threw a gig. We were both unknown. Nobody knew who we were. Uh-huh. But they, uh, through their contacts, they had an article written in the newspaper and they said all these things about me that were untrue. Like they said, you know, Danny's very good friends with uh, David Byrne, and he's done this and he's done that. And they just made up a bunch of stuff. And so the club was about the size of Zanzibar, and it was completely packed. Well, how big is that? I don't know. How big about it is. 300 people, okay. but it was completely packed, right? We walked into this situation. And I started getting scared. I started getting like a rat heart, you know, going boom, 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 boom. I was just like, what did they expect me to, from me? I don't know what, they, you know, what I should do. So then I had like about five Jack and Cokes, and I didn't care. <laughs> and you the know? sugar and the alcohol. Yeah, sugar, alcohol, and I just hit him like a, like George Foreman. You know, I just went in there, and I just started playing my best, most aggressive tunes I could play. Mm-hmm. And and they loved it. They completely loved it. And they, afterward, uh, I took a break at one point, and I went out front just to catch my breath and stuff. And there was a guy out there. He was a, um, a manager of a record store. Mm-hmm. And he he started telling me about all the guys that 
he's seen come through town all the heavy heavy djs that came from new york and london and all this stuff and he goes man you're as good as any of those guys and i was unknown completely That's unknown awesome. at the time but it was one of those things like i i actually thought before i left on that trip that if that gig does, did, doesn't go well i'm not i may not dj again you know really i was kind of feeling like that and it and it went so incredibly that it kind of inspired me to keep pushing you know and um even today i still have thoughts like you know there are times when i i go i don't know how much longer i'm going to do this i think the next thing i'm going to try to do is is do an album you know where i come from a, a background of being a producer right so i'm just going to pick talent i'm going to pick talent and try to find songs and try to find you know a rapper a singer or something and just put together a project and see what it happens but at this point in my life there's i just the things that excite me most are things i've never done you know so uh you know somebody i've had a couple of people ask me lately you know they go well what motivates you do you just want to be famous or something like that and my instinct is to go no no it's much deeper than that but actually yeah, I haven't been famous yet, so I, I, may, I may as well try being famous. You know that what I mean? sounds good. I'm down yeah, for you being famous. I, I just want to do try new things, things mm-hmm. that I haven't done before, so I don't care, you know. Try being famous. Try being famous for a couple of weeks, see what happens. That sounds good. Well, hopefully we can help you with that and uh, and spotlight all this, all these mixes and everything. You have to come back and tell us about, like, trips to Brazil and Africa and all that other stuff, and we have to, we'll play a bunch of the music, and we're obviously going to play a bunch of that stuff here today, and so people can hear it. People can be educated cool. as far as the all the uh, records you have. Yeah, you know the. Um, I think the the what what uh, when you're a DJ, it helps to be identified with one style of music. Mm-hmm. You know, then people can peg you and 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 know what to expect from you. And I it, sometimes I almost think like I should have different names according to the sets I'm going to do. Like that makes you know, sense. I, if I'm going to spend a reggae set, I should. My name should be Bill Dennymon Holloway, you know? Yeah. And then people go, oh, he's going to play reggae tonight. Right. You know? But really, like, there's a lot of sets I do where I'm just, I'm jumping around. And, um, but you, you're going to get f- more famous if you're good at one particular thing. Yeah, you, you know? stick to that one thing. Yeah. Keep, keep your name the same. Yeah. Very simple. Yeah, yeah. Stupid name. Well, um, I think we're, I think we can wrap, we can safely wrap it up now. All right, Johnny. We've, we've gone into Journeys Unknown, Twisted the Winds, and now we're back landing in planet Earth. Cool. Thanks, Danny. Uh, anytime. Bye-bye. See you. Hey, I'm calling music. This is yeah, this is uh, Kevin. I'm calling about, uh, I just wanted to get some more information about music. Uh, Sure. in there and I was uh-huh. asking them about that 
and they said that uh, that's what this is. It's from this company called Muzak. Right. Right. Okay. Well, I own, I own a couple. I own a warehouse chain, and we okay. do have like some customer interaction occasionally, like in okay. lobbies and stuff, when people are coming to um, check it out. And I want to just right. how does that work? So how how would I go about? Well, know, you tell me. Um, I don't know. We use well, yeah, we do that. Uh, we actually well, we do way more than that. Okay. What else you guys do? We do, um, first we do, you know, speakers, you know, we do like speakers in various places, like if you have like a main lobby area or yeah, office rooms and stuff like that, we do speakers in the music, of course. What about outside? Um, outside we do um, on-premise music as well, so we can do outside speakers. What I mean is, are they like, are they like all-weather speakers? Yeah, they're weather. No yeah, way. Well, they, now, when we mount those, the way we mount the speakers, we do it in the best possible to get the most range and uh, the, the less weather damage. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, and we do digital signage, which is like TVs, like, you know, if you ever go like a, let's say a car dealership and they have like the flat screen TVs mounted with like a presentation or a slideshow of different promotions and stuff, we do that. Okay. Uh, we do we do on-hold messaging for your phone system, so like if you call, customers call into wow. the warehouse. We have like the music and messaging on your phone system. Mm -hmm. That would be great. Yeah, and you can like put any music tool. you want on there. Um, yeah, you could. Um, but typically, you know, you can just pick like a genre or something. Let's say if you want like classic rock or something like that. What about like Rocksteady? Rocksteady by uh, Aretha Franklin. No, Rocksteady is a genre of music. You know what oh I'm talking yeah, about? yeah, <laughs> yeah. Have you heard about this? Uh, um, I have, actually. Yeah, it's uh -huh. like this music that comes from Jamaica. It was before right. reggae, and it's like, it's really interesting, because I guess the summer of 1968 in Jamaica, it was exceptionally hot, uh -huh. and they had to slow down ska music. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that, is, that's not anything fairly new, is it? Or is no, 1968, so, that's the year. 68, oh, okay. So, yeah, think about, I don't know, do you think 68's... Is that recent or is that far away? I don't know. Uh, well, no, we do music. We do fifties. We do music all the way back to the fifties. What about the forties? Um, and if that's something that we don't have on any of our um, no forties, I can always let our um, account. Our it's called Audio Architects. Audio Architects. That's a cool. That could be a band name, don't you think? Yeah, Audio Architects. Audio Architects. <laughs> That'd be cool because you'd be like you like do these long shows. Like you could do like three hour shows, and it would be. You know, yeah. the idea would be you're constructing a sound as opposed to like art. just playing it. It'll be a fun. Like a work of art. Yeah. Yeah, work of art, right? Because architecture is a work of art. Mm hmm. Yeah, that'll be a fun idea, I think. Audio so like so, Wait, so that, is, that, is that taken as a band name or not? No, that's, uh, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh -uh. Okay, I'm going to write that down. Because I just think I might. Because I, you know, I'm a pretty big music guy and I've been, uh, yeah. Doing it. I've been done. I did. I've done bands before. I've done. I've done in bands. Um, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about doing a band again, uh, and I'm trying to look for inspiration wherever I can get it. That's a good name. All the architects. Yeah. I was through that of the Cobalt Cobalt Quintet. What do you think about that? Cobalt Quintet. That sounds Cobalt Quintet. Classical. Yeah. It, well, it's like a it looks like a jazz fusion type thing. Mm-hmm. It's like we all dress up like Joe Zawinul from Weather Report, and um. The only problem is I don't have five guys. Is that a quintet? Yeah. That's, that's a quintet, yeah. right? Yeah. I, well, I always get the yeah, spoken to you. Yeah, it's a quintet. I like that. 
What's that? I said all the ladies probably be flocking to y'all like that. Oh yeah, all the ladies. Yeah, yeah. it was. I think I don't know. I think uh, Joe Zawinul probably brought some tail down in his day. Uh-huh. I don't know. Just I don't meet a lot of women who are into jazz fusion. It's, it's unfortunate. I know. Yeah. That's why I keep thinking like this might be a good thing is to get, you know, you get the speakers um, playing the jazz fusion when you're making a sale, and mm-hmm. then that, you can like segue. You know, that's the hardest yeah. thing about talking to women. It's just like the, you know, what are you going to talk to them about? But if you have like a thing that's always playing, yeah, then you can talk. You know, you could always talk to them about that. That's yeah. a, that's another idea I have, and I was wondering if you guys sound like you could probably help me out with it, but. Um, yep. Do just some sort of thing that would be like it's almost like almost like a mobile boombox of sorts, but something you wouldn't uh-huh. have to carry, something you could like wear, or like maybe you could wear it as like a, almost like a backpack. How does it work well, with mobile have, mobile music? Well, you know they have uh, backpacks with speakers built in. You guys make those? No, we don't make those. Really? They, I mean, they they make those, but we don't make oh. those. Do you do do you, do you guys do any type of thing where your your music is able to be played on a mobile device? Not, uh, not a cell phone, but I mean like a thing that moves around. No, no, not yet. Not yet. Uh, Don't you guys, it's a satellite, right? Yeah, we do satellite. So if I had a satellite receiver, couldn't I, uh, couldn't I play the music, the music? Well, you could, well, you could, let's say you're a music, let's say you're a music client. You M- look at well, you said music, music, not music, right? Yeah, Muzak. Muzak. Okay. If you're a Muzak client, mm-hmm. you're going to get an online account, which is called My, uh, My Muzak Dashboard, okay. which allows you to access your account and you can see what songs are playing at any given time. Got and it. You, it will let you hear the song as playing. So you can always have your music handy. If you like your iPhone, you can always log into your account. You know and what? Music. I'm getting a call right now. I'm going to have to call you back. I'm sorry. Call my. Uh, okay, call me right back. Okay, bye. Thanks. Hello? Hey, it's PJ, man. How are you doing? I'm good. Feralaudio.com is an artist-friendly podcast collective. Hosted by castmates.fm. Host your own podcast at castmates.fm today. All of our artists reserve the rights to their materials. Your donations directly support your favorite artists, help pay for their show's production, and keep your favorite shows free. Visit fairlaudio.com for other original shows and learn about our community of artists that help make this collective possible. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Features the music of the fancy. We are the fancy. Don't to the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.